Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Darren Hefty along with my brother Brian. On today's program, we're going to get a crop progress update. We would love to hear how things are going on your farm and talk through any agronomic things that are happening there that you'd like to discuss. Our phone lines will be open throughout the show at 844-44-AG-PHD. You can also send us an email, radio at agphd.com. And just to give you a little background here, before the show, I was talking to my sister Janelle as our producer, and Janelle was standing by the printer. And she said, yeah, I printed out a few of the emails that you got today. I'm like, really? She goes, yeah, 87 of them so far. I'm like, okay. So we will have the Ag PhD mailbag on today's program, probably throughout the show here, trying to get through as many of those 87 questions as we can. You know, we do we do love getting questions. So if you have a question for us, you want to email it in, radio at agphd.com, again, is our address. And just send it in anytime. That's fine. Don't feel bad like, oh, no, they got so many questions, they won't get to mine. We will get to yours. And, in fact, uh, with 87 of them, Brian may just have to pick up the pace a little bit as we move through some of those today. All right. Yep, I can speed it up a little bit. But let's get to it right now. The Ag PhD Mailbag. It's the mailbag. All right, I get a question from Ron here in North Central Ohio. He said, we have some compaction issues from all the extreme rain events that have occurred the last three years. And I was watching a recent show that you had and was impressed with the tool that I saw during that show at what kind of tillage you were doing. You mentioned a specific show number and a specific uh, time during the show, just wondering exactly which machine it was. And he said, P.S. I enjoy watching your show. I'm amazed by the different management styles I see on different farms. And that's the first thing that I thought when I was reading, okay, compaction issues. He's wondering what we do about compaction. We've got a few different approaches that we take, Brian, for compaction on our farm. Oh, so you don't have the answer for him. So you read the question, you don't have the answer for him. Okay, so we're going to have to save that one for tomorrow. Let's go to the next one. Oh, I just thought we'd discuss a few different things. Nope. You, you I, well, said we thing, had 87 to get through. we got, uh, we got to speed I know, this up. I know, but here's the thing. When we get a question like that, and, and a lot of times people will tune into our show, and maybe they just see our show sporadically, they think, okay, that's the one solution for compaction. It's not. There's a number of different things that, that we may utilize on our yeah, farm. Yeah, but that's I mean, I the at. main thing for compaction is not even a tillage tool at all. The main thing is, or the main things, number one, tile. Number two, organic matter in your soil. Number three, the amount of calcium you have. Calcium is a much bigger molecule than magnesium, for example, and you will have better porosity if you have more calcium in the soil. So we want tile in the ground if you've had drainage issues. We want you to build your organic matter levels, preferably 5 to 7% organic matter. That'd be great. Then you'll have a lot less compaction. It's like a sponge in the soil. And then the third thing is keep that calcium level over 65%. If you can do those three things, then usually you've got less issue. But we often talk about a brilliant zone commander um, or something like that, straight shank, narrow point, so we're not totally rolling the soil and and just basically uh, uh, getting the fines moved all down to a newer, lower level. We are just simply making a slice through the soil or a few slices through the soil so roots can get deeper. Um, we also do talk about some of these coulter machines that can be run in the spring, for example, in wetter conditions that don't create lots of compaction. But yeah, I, I don't know specific to that particular show. We'll have to look that up for tomorrow. Go ahead. All right. Thanks for the question, Ron. Thanks for watching the show, too. Got one from Gail here, and Gail says, 
where you drain your tile lines is a big deal. What about following your state's drainage laws? You can only legally drain your fields where water would naturally drain, yep. not whatever's best or cheapest for the farmers. Be respectful to your neighbors and the environment. Yeah, but the water is going downhill anyway. So as long as you are continuing the natural course and not changing dramatically how much water is going, you have the legal right to drain your ground. So water gets to be a major issue for a lot of people, but what a lot of people don't realize is that water's moving whether you see it or not. And if you're downhill from somebody, it's getting to you no matter what, whether you see it above ground, whether you see it coming out of a tile line, or what typically is happening is it's moving down below the ground and it's keeping you wetter longer. So if there's tile on the ground, you'll actually be drier downstream. And I know it seems weird, but you will. Believe me, I am downstream of many people who have tiled, and I'm drier now because they put the tile in. All right, thanks for the the question comment there, Gail. I appreciate that. Uh, get, well, this one from Scott. He said, you are debating cover crops versus cash crops, and therein lies the issue, getting conservation to pay. Smart farmers are learning about soil biology and not worrying as much about quantifying the benefits of keeping soil in the field instead of in the water. Not exactly how to take that statement necessarily, I don't, I don't, Scott. I don't, I don't either. But let's let's just put this comment out there. In order for any farmer to continue being a farmer, they have to have sources of income. Now, it's all easy to say if somebody's a hobby farmer and it's not even their job and they don't even care about making money there. But who we predominantly are talking to are farmers who they earn their living based on the crops that they're going to raise. And yes, if they do the right things for the soil, in the long term, it should be beneficial. But in the short term, they also have to make money. And so when we talk about cover crops, I'm not a huge proponent of cover crops just for the sake of throwing cover crops out there. We have to get some benefit out of it, and then I'm perfectly good with it. But we also have to think about, you know what, if I could raise another cash crop, so let's say it's a cover crop, but let's say I could take it for forage. Well, now it's become a cash crop. And so anything you can do to generate income yet still do the right thing for the soil is great. I I, want to reiterate something we often talk about here on the show. Just keep in mind for us, for Darren and me, and for our whole lives as farmers, as agronomists, as ag PhD, we have three goals in mind. Always, every day, every minute of every day. Number one is yield. Number two is profitability. Okay, obviously you got to have those things or you're not going to be in business. But number three is always we're trying to do the right thing for the environment. And I don't want to conserve. I don't want conservation. I don't want sustainability. What I want is improvement. Conservation and sustainability mean going backwards or staying the same. I want improvement. I want to make the environment actually better. I want the soil to be better. I want the water to be better. I want the air to be cleaner. We can do all those things in modern agriculture if we take the right steps. That's what we try to talk about here on our show each day. And we'll continue doing that here on this show today. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Worried about glyphosate-resistant weeds and grasses in your corn? Unleash the power of new Impact-Z herbicide and get the early post-application advantage you've been waiting for. Save $3 per acre when you combine Impact-Z with a qualifying insecticide purchase. Go to buy2save3.com for details. Buy2save3 is a service mark and Impact-Z is a trademark owned by AMVAC Chemical Corporation. All rights reserved. Impact-Z is a restricted-use pesticide. Always read and follow label instructions. Wherever you go. 
whatever you're doing, whenever you want. Farm your way with Case IH AFS Connect. Now you can farm, share data, and manage your fleet however, whenever, and wherever you want. Learn more at caseih.com slash farm your way. More choices, more money. With Bayer Plus Rewards, you choose from our broad portfolio of high-performance products. Earn more money on the eligible products that are right for your farm. And use our new portal to see your purchases, track your rewards, and decide how you want to use them. Visit mybearplus.com to sign in and start earning. That's the advantage of more control in your hands. That's the plus. Revitech fungicide from BASF has been specifically developed for the selective soybean grower who doesn't compromise. If you think good is good enough, if you're okay with just achieving rather than overachieving, if average is your goal, this is not the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide, brand new chemistry, three no excuse modes of action, zero modes of compromise. Sounds like the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide from BASF, that's smart. Always read and follow label directions. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, and today we're getting a crop progress update. We would love to hear from you on how your crops are looking, what you're seeing in your region. Our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD, or you can email us, radio at agphd.com. Got Jim on the line with us right now up in Ontario, Canada. Jim, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you guys? You know, we're doing pretty well. Crops don't look too bad here. How about in your area? Uh, in my little world, uh, the crops are above average. We've had timely rains, and uh, and things look really good, considering all. Excellent. Yeah, that's a big thing this time of year. If that rain can just keep coming a little bit here, a little bit there, not too much at any one point, that's that's fantastic. So where are you at? Where Have you got corn that's all tasseled out now? Our corn just coming out in tassel. Our soybeans are over our knees full flower and we started wheat last week and uh, the yields are really good on the wheat so all is good that's very that's really fun okay so talk to us about that wheat crop a little bit what are you seeing are you seeing high protein levels do you have premiums for that in your area are you seeing heavy test weight what how would you describe this this year's crop well um i farm with a neighbor and we did a field of his wheat and he trucked it out and the elevator called, and it weighed uh, 65 and a half pounds. Wow. Test weight. And awesome. That was the highest, the highest they've ever had. That's amazing. So they, it is. It is. So uh, um, he was quite happy. So what do you credit that to? Is it just good weather that everything turned out and you had lots of sunshine, or did you do something a little different on the nutrient program? Well... They asked him the same question, and uh, he rotates his crops, wheat, soybean, corn. Uh, there's red clover go down on the wheat every year. And one other thing, I don't know if it makes a difference, he uses Agritain in his, in his 28. So uh, maybe you can tell me why the test weight was so high. 
Well, one of the big keys for heavy test weight is having good levels of nitrogen and, and other nutrients like sulfur available late in the season. So, yes, keeping that nitrogen available later is good. Having that red clover in your cover crop system, that could be something, too, where some of that nitrogen's coming available late. Uh, however it worked out this year, that's fantastic. The other thing would maybe be just not having excessive rain where you had leaching and, and any nitrogen loss. There's, there's a lot of good things that go into that. I love the crop rotation, too. So, yeah, that's that's awesome. Kudos. I hope you can keep repeating that. Yeah, yeah. We had to um, uh, replant some soybeans in our area, um, and as it ended up, both plantings grew. So we have some very lush and thick soybeans in our area. But uh, um, guys are putting on their fungicides, and uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, you mentioned the beans are in full bloom. That will be kind of neat to see how that turns out, especially, like you say, if you got almost a double stand out there in some spots and just do a little comparison with population to see, did the heavy population help anything? Did it hurt anything? I know for us, we'd be nervous about white mold if we had a really high population and a super thick canopy. Yes, we, uh, that, that's our concern too. So I guess time will tell, but... Uh we're really fortunate in our area in southwestern Ontario. So. Okay, tell me about the corn then, Jim. We talked about the wheat and the soybeans a little bit. You said you're tasseling now on the corn. Do you have a fungicide application coming up? Is that something normal in your area, or or what happens at this point? Yeah, I think so. The the, the pig farmers and the and the cattle guys I always go with uh, with the fungicide. I think guys are looking at the cost this year. Uh, but if you feed your own corn, uh, most guys go with a fungicide program. So it's kind of up to the individual whether they do or they don't. But uh, So I would say there's a 50-50 split in my area on corn fungicides. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about it down here right now, too. I know the aerial applicators are quite busy in a lot of areas. Talk to a farmer over in Minnesota, and he's like, man, I don't know if I can even get them out here in time to kind of hit the window that I want to hit just because they're so booked up at this point. But but that's a good sign that farmers think their crop looks good enough that it's worth protecting even a little more. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Well, great talking to you, Jim. Congratulations on that super heavy test weight wheat. That is fantastic, and uh, glad the crops are doing well. Hopefully, hopefully it continues that way for you. Well, thanks, and you guys do a great job for agriculture. Thank oh, you. thanks a lot, Jim. Really appreciate that. Uh, let's head over to Quebec. We've got John on with us right now. John, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm finding uh, it a little warm, and it's uh, very humid here for the last two weeks, so we're waking, hoping for a break sometime soon. Yeah, the humidity has been pretty high in a lot of areas this year. So how does that impact it? Are you worried more about disease than you normally would? Uh, no, we've been keeping an eye on things, and uh, nothing seems to be changing. It's No, it's, everything's pretty good, really. Excellent. All right, talk so to I, us about yeah. your crops. What have you got in this year in the ground? Uh, we, we have corn and soybeans. And we grow uh, processing peas and beans for uh, for freezing. We can raise it freezes. And uh, our peas are already gone. They're already harvested. And uh, so we're in the process of leveling. We plowed those fields. We don't generally use a moldboard plow, but when we level, it find it better to get rid of all the trash so it levels much more easily. 
Sure. Uh, so what do you follow that and, plow uh, with? Do you put a cover crop in? Do you put a double crop in where you're at? Uh, we're too late for a cover crop. For I'm sorry, for a, a second crop right now. Uh, normally, if we weren't going to level, we put in soybeans, a second crop of soybeans. But now we just put in a cover crop. All right. And we'll put that in probably first week, second, first and second week of August. Okay. Do you know what you're going to use for a mix? Are you going to go cereal rye? Or are you going to put a blend of broadleaf and grass? What what works good there? <laughs> we have quite a few mixes this year. Basically, uh, we have a, we grow, uh, I'll explain how, how we do it. We put it in, we have an air seeder and uh, seven and a half inches and we put two rows of uh, cereal, cereal rye and oats. The other two rows will be mustard uh, and uh, and oilseed radish. Interesting. And, I like uh, it. So so th- so then we next spring we we just no tail right into the to the radish, or you know the two rows that, where the radish is. Sure, sure. And mustard is so. That's our poor man's strip till. <laughs> no, I like it. That's creative. That's that's a neat way to do it, John. All right, talk to us a little bit about your corn and your soybeans. Then, how do they look this year? Well, uh, we, our spring was very dry and very cold. Uh, took probably took the corn three weeks to fully to emerge, and we went ahead. Everything was fit. The soil was fit, and the same with the beans too. We planted the beans. I think we're all finished second or third of May, something like that. Um, uh, my nephew, I'm basically semi-retired now. My nephew and my son on the farm but they uh, they bought a second planter this year for soybeans and the season was so early they hardly used it well i mean they didn't have to. they did use it but we also used the the corn planter too so the soybeans got planted pretty quickly yeah so okay you've got the uh, next we generation we see it. got the next yeah. generation taken over then john that congratulations to you that's awesome that you got oh, those guys you. Ex- yeah, yeah, inspired you know. to do it you have to bite your tongue sometimes, though. You know? <laughs> now that's what our dad always used to say to us. I I don't know, John, but now I know what you mean. It's it is hard sometimes to turn that control, but but kudos to you for letting those guys make some decisions and uh, and get started. Yeah. That's great. I'll tell you one thing that we did. They did between the corn planter and the bean planter they bought it was just a, the bean planter was a twelve row uh, John Deere planter. And uh, but it doesn't have the delta force or anything like that on it, whereas the corn planter does, and we see a difference in the in the uh, emergence and the population with the the delta force planter. I know it's a different brand, but uh, it's just uh, it makes a better job. Yeah, I I would second that. That's made a big difference on our farm as well, especially like you say when you were dry this spring. Some of those dry soils on our farm this year it made a huge difference for us too. Uh, talking with John up in Quebec. John, thank you so much. Really appreciate you sharing about your farm a little bit, and good luck here the rest of the season. Stay tuned. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We'll be right back. More choices, more money. With Bayer Plus Rewards, you choose from our broad portfolio of high-performance products, Earn more money on the eligible products that are right for your farm. And use our new portal to see your purchases, track your rewards, and decide how you want to use them. 
Visit MyBayerPlus.com to sign in and start earning. That's the advantage of more control in your hands. That's the plus. When it comes to innovative herbicide formulations, you know New Farm. New Farm brings you Credit Extreme, the herbicide with dual salt technology that makes all the difference. Faster uptake, quicker rain fastness, and better control in variable weather, something we've all had our fair share of. When you need more powerful weed control for challenges like lamb's quarters and velvet leaf, with excellent safety to Roundup Ready crops, you need Credit Extreme. New Farm and Credit Extreme, here to help. Your land is a legacy, a challenge from those who tended it before you to build on their foundations. At Corteva AgriScience, we understand what it means to be the stewards of a legacy. We embrace the challenge of building on the foundation of Dow AgroSciences to maintain your trust, to bring new solutions, to help you care for your land. See how we can help build your legacy at rangeandpasture.com. Stop losing money from your stored grain with the Endzone Fan Control System from FarmShop MFG. Hot spots and moisture in your bin can cost you thousands in lost revenue. The Endzone monitors outside conditions to run your fans exactly when you want them to, naturally bringing your grain to ideal temperature and humidity. Master bin management with the Endzone. For more information, visit farmshopmfg.com. With resistance on the rise, fighting disease in corn and soybeans takes a heavy-duty fungicide with super strength. Solera FX from UPL combines two powerful fungicides at full rates for maximum performance and yield. Solera FX delivers more robust disease control with both curative and preventative activity. And Solera FX is now registered for use in wheat. Ask your UPL representative or retailer about Solera FX, a super fungicide whose time has come. Always read and follow label directions. Success isn't just about maintaining your operation, how you make out for the season, or how much you can get from each acre. It's about doing precisely what needs to be done to feed your crop and grow your legacy, all the way down to the last drop. AgroLiquid Precision Crop Nutrition. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. Getting a crop progress update, and we would love to hear how things are going in your area. Our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD. Let's head to the East Coast. We've got John with us right now in Maryland. John, how are you today? I'm here. I'm here. All right. Every so, day above green is a good day, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So what's the, what's the crop looking like in your area? It's dry. It's used some rain. Now, in in Maryland, when we look at dry, how much irrigation is there? Is there, are there a lot of acres that are irrigated that are doing pretty well? Um, on the eastern shore, there's a lot of irrigated, but where I live, it's rolling hills, and it just doesn't make sense to irrigate. So, All right, so talk to us about the crop. Is the corn or leaves rolling up? Is it that bad, or is yeah. it just you, you need some? We've gotten some scattered showers, but... Um, you know, it's, you know how that goes. I mean, if we can get scattered showers, some corn will be all right. Some's pretty bad. It's got, yeah, rolled up ears and it's in tassel and 
it's uh it's just it's not looking too good i mean we could really use some rain we're supposed to get some rain tomorrow and the next day but who knows right yeah <laughs> yeah well we were supposed to get rain today and we were going to be outside doing some things this morning we thought no let's wait a little while and do it later and man by the time we got out there it was pretty hot and humid we were, we were really wishing we would have gotten going earlier and not listened to the forecast because they didn't come through with rain for us yeah how does that humidity play out in the um in the crop i hear brian talking about how you guys have a lot of humidity and that helps the crop um does the humidity like how does that work is it pulling on during the dew or how does that work the humidity helping the crop yeah I'll, I'll jump in on that one so we talk about this quite often here in the state of south dakota there's a big difference between where we farm in the eastern side of the state and even the central part of the state they'll often have 10 to 20 percent less humidity every day we can have the same rainfall as they'll have in the center part of the state and you wouldn't even know we're raising the same crop it's that much different in terms of our yield versus their yield sometimes i'm not saying every year but some years anyway in the natural process of transpiration and respiration that the plant has, the plant's constantly kicking moisture out into the air and pulling moisture back in. And so if it's kicking more out than it's pulling back in, then that just creates a whole problem within that plant. And I I often bring this up too with a lot of people that want to say, oh, there's a maximum temperature for when corn will grow. So for growing degree days, for example, they'll call it 86 degrees. And my argument against that all the time is, look, 86 degrees is whole different when you have 20% humidity versus when you have 80% humidity. These last couple of weeks, we've literally had some 86 degree days with 70, 75, 80% humidity. And I mean, it's brutally miserable for uh, for human beings, but it's fantastic for our crops. So yeah, the crop is basically just pulling more moisture in from the air and that allows it to be healthier. Okay. Because yeah, we've had, I think, I think we've had like 20 days over 90 degrees here or something. Sure. It's, uh, and, and today and yesterday were like a hundred degrees and it's humid. So I'm like, Jeez, I don't know. I don't know. Like, is, so, so the, is the plant pulling the moisture in through the air? Is what you're saying? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Okay. That's the that like I'm saying the respiration transpiration process. Right. There are little puffs of moisture getting kicked out constantly and you can tell it when you walk through a cornfield and you go, "Whoa, it's really humid inside the field." That's what's happening. Right. It's kicking moisture out, but then it wants to pull moisture back in too. And so if it can't, now we start to run into problems. Okay, so if the, if there's a lot of humidity, yep. it'll help. It'll help. Yep. Uh, Absolutely. Okay. All right. Um, I had another question for you, Brian. Sure. Um, you know, calling up, I always have a question. I really appreciate <laughs> you answering my questions, man. Anytime. Um, you, you know, as far as uh, clay and, I guess, sand in the soil, you know, I've heard people say, like, um, like a, they're always saying, like, a silt loam soil and all this and, uh, you know, manor channery soil or whatever they're saying. Yep. You know, we have a lot of soils here on the Piedmont Plateau. You know, we can go, we can literally go 100 yards and get a totally different um, soil type. Yep. And so my question is this, you know, as far as like the clay and I guess sand ratio and I don't know what else is in there, I guess gravel and rock or what have you, where is, I guess, where does clay play out in the CEC equation? How can you tell like what's better ground? Because I've heard I've heard old farmers <laughs> say that the clay soil is a whole more water. Yep. Does clay show up in the CECs? Yes. How do you test for that, et cetera? 
So cation exchange capacity, or CEC like you mentioned, is basically a measurement of three things. It's the type of clay that you have, the amount of clay that you have, and then the amount of organic matter that's in your soil. Right. Clay is high on cation exchange capacity, but organic matter is even higher. So if, let's say, I'm on the east coast and I'm right along the coast, there are some soils there that are 20-30% inorganic matter. They will be off the charts for cation exchange capacity, and that that's almost creating too many problems because now I can't put tile in and things like that very cost-effectively. But anyway, my point here is, yes, clay is a good thing in that it holds moisture, but it can also be a bad thing in that it holds moisture. So it all depends on okay. kind of how you manage it. And there are a lot of people that look at, I mean, look at uh, like David Hewlett just south of you. He's got really sandy soils, yet he's able to produce world record corn yields. I mean, you can't do that without irrigation there, obviously, with all that heat and everything. But we look at sand as an advantage if you have irrigation potential because you can change everything in that soil very inexpensively, very quickly, no problem with that, and kind of you're to some degree in control of Mother Nature. For us, where we farm and we're froze almost half the year and we have heavy soils, it takes a lot of money to fix our soil to change things to get our ratios right it just takes time and so it's a little frustrating to me when i want things done today is not going to happen in our super heavy soil okay cool so basically i guess what you're saying is like if there's like 15 cec and under and you have rolling ground and non-irrigated you know i don't see anything over 15 cec around here. it's good to have that clay to hold the moisture yes. but in different situations you're going to have to play it well, differently which is very interesting you know i find that very yep. you know all the old time farmers that have been in the area forever they're always like yeah man you gotta have the you gotta have the, the clay in the soil but it's just interesting that different conditions you know this farming thing is so amazing because i can go <laughs> i can literally yep. go you know i can literally go 100 miles from me and it's a completely different situation and then i can go out to you guys and it's totally different it's, now, yes, we, we really have an incredible, now, incredible subject that we like. Yep. Now you brought up soil types. This is another thing that, to some degree, drives me crazy. It's kind of like back in the old days. Our address. I'll, I'll just tell you, our home address years ago used to be Rural Route One, Box One Thirty Five, Baltic. Now, where in the world is that? You have no clue. Today, <laughs> it's a specific number. It's a five-digit number followed by. Uh, a certain street. So, for example, our field day, our Ag PhD field day is 47669 252nd Street. We know exactly where that's, that is. That's 376 miles from the Wyoming border. It is 152 miles from the North Dakota border. We know exactly pinpointed where it is. My point is, instead of naming all these soils, why don't we start having numbers? And if we had, okay, it's this percent of clay, this percent of silt, this percent of sand, and this, uh, you know, whatever it is for organic matter percentage, now we actually have something. Because otherwise, yeah, you rattled off some names there. I have no clue right. what that is, good or bad. Well, that's impossible to manage when you don't know. You can't teach it. You're just like, oh, yeah, it's this. And, you know, like he said, buying ground or what's it worth or the farmers say this one's better and that one's, well, I don't even know what it is. It's impossible. So I always tell guys, look, before you buy ground, just go ask and, and ask the, and usually they'll say yes. Go 
ask the auctioneer and the landowner, hey, can I just pull a few soil tests? They'll let you. You get the soil test results back. Now you've actually got something. But all these maps of, you know, from 50 years ago, it's this soil type and it's this productivity, whatever. I don't believe any of that. I want to see what the actual soil test says. Then I'm getting somewhere. Hey, uh, John, we got to run. I really appreciate the call today. Thanks a lot and best of luck to you out there. Hey, great talking to you as always. Thank you. You you bet. Thank you. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, and we're getting a crop progress update. We would love to hear from you. Our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD. You can also find us on Twitter at Ag PhD Media, Brian Hefty or Darren Hefty, or you can send us an email, radio at agphd.com. We got some soil samples to go through. We got a number of reports and pictures that came in and uh, got more calls to get to as well. We'll be right back after this. With resistance on the rise, fighting disease in corn and soybeans takes a heavy-duty fungicide with super strength. Solera FX from UPL combines two powerful fungicides at full rates for maximum performance and yield. Solera FX delivers more robust disease control with both curative and preventative activity. And Solera FX is now registered for use in wheat. Ask your UPL representative or retailer about Solera FX, a super fungicide whose time has come. Always read and follow label directions. Want to cut production costs without losing yield? Brian Ryberg from Buffalo Lake, Minnesota has done just that. Here's his story. We began using a soil warrior in our farm fall of 2014. We've seen many benefits from better water infiltration, a lot less hours on equipment, fuel, able to reduce our fertilizer side, so it's really simplified our operation. See what makes Soil Warrior different and better at SoilWarrior.com. Hey, Adam. New drone? Not just any drone. I mounted a laser on it to take out weeds. Look out for that tree. In the power lines! Oh, it's in for the house. There's a simpler way to protect spring wheat from weeds. Perfect Match Herbicide. The broadest spectrum weed and grass control in one product. Learn more at perfectmatchherbicide.com. Always read and follow label directions. The laser. Success isn't just about maintaining your operation, how you make out for the season, or how much you can get from each acre. It's about doing precisely what needs to be done to feed your crop and grow your legacy. All the way down to the last drop. Agroliquid Precision Crop Nutrition. Apply less, expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Downtime during spraying can lead to huge yield losses. Keep rolling with the Pentair Hypro Force Field. This pump features a unique self-regulated chamber that allows the pump to run dry while eliminating cracked seals, so you can spray longer and more reliably. Learn more at pentair.com hypro. Stop losing money from your stored grain with the Enzone Fan Control System from FarmShop MFG. The Enzone monitors outside conditions to run your fans so your grain naturally reaches ideal temperature and humidity. For more information, visit farmshopmfg.com. Oh my goodness, did you see Bob's gorgeous soybean rows? Um, totally. I couldn't believe how clean and weed-free his entire field looked. I'm like, so jealous. I heard he started using this new post-applied residual herbicide called Perpetuo. And it's burned down and long-lasting residual powers making his soybeans like literally the talk of the town. 
Ah, so Perpetuo's is secret. Yep. Talk to your retailer or visit valent.com slash Perpetuo to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Today we're getting a crop progress update. We'd love to hear how things are going in your area. And our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD. Oh, I'm so happy right now. I just handed Brian at least 20 sheets of paper. We got an email from Brandon, and he sent a bunch of soil tests and other information for us. So Brian's going to get a whole, like, 15 seconds to look through it. Uh, so Brandon from Northern Illinois sent this. Well, what's, what's the question? He said, I really enjoy listening to you guys. I attended your Neil Kinsey meeting last winter. Really enjoyed that, too. He says that you can't build up K on soils with a pH over 6.5. So I've attached a couple of soil samples on a certain farm, and I applied potash every year at about 250 pounds per acre of potash. One year I dumped 400 pounds of potash and 250 pounds of potassium sulfate on the ground. So I've been putting a lot of K out there. It's in a corn and soybean rotation. Now my corn's been averaging 260 bushels. My beans have been in the upper 70s. Have Wait, I not? How often has he been doing this? Every time he plants corn, or what? Every year, he's been putting product out there. We sure every year, or we he's, sure every year in front of corn. He says I have applied potash every year okay. at 250 right. pounds. One year he dumped. 400 pounds of potash, 250 pounds of potassium sulfate. But he said, have I not applied enough K to raise my base saturation? Or does Neil have a legitimate thought? One through six are the sample numbers that I applied the extra K. Just wondering what your thoughts are, what your experience has been building K even in higher pH soils. All right. Well, he's got, let's see. I'm just looking at cation exchange capacity. On average, I would say his cation exchange capacity is, let's call it 15. So it's not super heavy soil. Um, In total, his K levels right now, and this is pounds per acre, not parts per million. Pounds per acre ranges from, let's call it about 200 to a little over 300. 200 to 300 pounds is all. Okay, now here's the key thing that I wanted to tell you. If you take a look at corn, and I'm just pulling this up in the Ag PhD fertilizer removal app. Corn, in terms of grain removal only, uh, for potassium, so K2O potassium, that would be 65 pounds there it's removing. If I go to soybeans, and let's see, I'll pull up his... Uh, let's see, what was it? 70, uh, that's called 75. You said in the 70s. So here's the thing. In the corn year, or sorry, yeah, in the corn year, it's 75 pounds. But in the soybean year, it's 90 pounds, 90 pounds. Okay, now if I figure 250 pounds of potash and I take that times 60%, that's going to be 150 pounds. So if I apply 150 and I am only using 75 to 90 pounds with grain only, then yes, I should be building a little bit each year as we go. But this is where I come back to, Darren. I don't think he's putting it on every year. I think he meant he's putting it on every corn year and then he would not be putting on enough. So 
anyway, in terms of this high pH, let me see what he, well, first of all, his pH is not high. His pH is low. Neil said over 6.5. I know. He doesn't have anything. He has one out of all these. No, I'll take that back. Two out of all these that are over 6.5, and they're barely over 6.5, 6.7, No, you can absolutely build K, and quite frankly, we've been able to prove you can build K even at the high pH levels. But when we're at the high pH levels and we've been building K, we've been doing things to reduce the pH. So in other words, whenever you look at your soil, you got to look at how uh, did my soil get bad in the first place. If it's low in nutrients, maybe you just haven't put enough on. But let's say the salt is too high or the sodium is too high. Or, you know, like in the case of, all right, the pH is too high. Why did that happen? Why did that happen? And if you can figure out the why, usually it's because of drainage. But if you can figure out the why, you start solving the why. Well, now you're able to start building the potassium. So I think we've been able to build the potassium and we've proven it, that we can build it. And we can build it fast when we put a lot of pounds on. But yeah, in your case, I mean, two hundred. If it was two hundred fifty to four hundred pounds, if that's an every other year deal, you're not putting on enough. You're just not putting on enough for those big time yields that you're talking there, and you need more because even though Darren he's at two to three percent base saturation K, he's getting good yields. That's great, but I wouldn't count on that long term. Number one, but even if you continue to get good yields, uh, even if he continues to get good yields, I would be very concerned about lodging that standability overall. That's what we typically see with those low K levels. And I got to be honest, I'm shocked he's getting the soybean yield that he is. I mean, usually we don't see that kind of soybean yield out of that low of K levels. I already told you how much more potassium those soybeans well, need. Well, just a good example. We should be roughly three times as right, much corn one as third, And he's not there. One third of 260 bushel corn, that's what I was going to next. That'd be 87. He's getting bean yields in the 70s. He's not there. Increase the K. It's not going to go anywhere. You got 15-something. Well, it's not going anywhere when you're raising fast, those kind fast. of crops. Those are awesome yields. Good job. And yep. now we can do even better. And that's what you're proving with that corn yield is, you know, okay, there's something in here, and it might be potassium, as Brian is saying, that's holding back those soybean yields. We could, get, we could unlock more soybean yield potential. You're doing a great job. There's room to do even more. That's fantastic. All right. All right. Thanks for the question. Really appreciate that. Okay. Got another kind of a soil question here. This one is from Mac down in East Central Nebraska. So my dad's oh, hey, farm- Hey, sorry. I, let, I, I just want to come back to one last thing. On on his yields, going going back to this, his if I look at his nutrient levels, I would go, boy, that's going to be awful tough for him to raise the kind of yield that he is hoping for. But if he applies a lot of fertility, and he's doing that, he's applying more than the crops are moving, at least in that corn year, that's maybe what's what's pushing him over the edge. But here's one of the things. This is from Illinois. Our dad originally was a farmer in Iowa, and he's, he always told us, he said this a, a million times, he said, guys, when I was a farmer in Iowa, rain corrected a lot of my mistakes. Because I had rain constantly, I lucked out and I didn't have to have everything perfect. When you start getting into dry years, you're going to find that some of these low fertility levels that I'm looking at here, they're not going to do it. And so in some of the dry years, if you get a drought year, you're really going to suffer. Because I look at this, the boron's too low, the copper's too low. Uh, let's see, the zinc is a little on the low side. The sulfur is way too low. The potassium is way too low. The phosphorus is in the low category. So yeah, if you're, if you're applying a whole bunch right before your crop, great. 
then you then you're okay. But there's you're certainly not leaving anything behind, and that's my point. Okay, go ahead. All right, let's get to uh, Mac from East Central Nebraska. He said, "My dad's farm has been continuous corn for forty plus years, and the reason." is that some of his ground is high pH river bottom ground. Yep. And he doesn't want to put soybeans into that. Yep. However, he said, we do have some fields with normal soil pH as well. And I would like to plant some soybeans into those fields to bring some diversity to our farm. My sure. question is, is there anything special we need to do to the fields if we were to decide to plant soybeans after long-term corn-on-corn rotation, such as changing up your fertilizer program? Appreciate your time. Hope to hear from you. The right, two things, yeah, the two things I'd mention is number one, as we were just talking about, soybeans require more K than corn, so you need to get a little bit more potassium out there. And number two is nitrogen. And you're going to go, wait, I thought soybeans produce their own nitrogen. Well, they can if they have plenty of rhizobia bacteria, but they're not going to have plenty of rhizobia bacteria when it's your first time raising beans in many years. So we'd tell you, you probably need 50 pounds of nitrogen. You might need 100. In fact, I'd be willing to bet you a lot of money that 100 pounds of nitrogen would pay off even better than the 50 pounds, but you definitely need to apply some in. All right. One other comment here that Mac makes, he said, I know that we don't want to put soybeans in these fields with high pH, and drainage is not a possibility to lower those soils with high pH due to the fact we have nowhere to go with the water. But Wait, he made the comment the that it was river bottom. Yeah, that mean, was confusing to me, Mac. Now, maybe they confusing. aren't all in the river bottom, but let's just say you've got flat river bottom ground, and you yeah. say, ah, there's just nowhere you to go. You pump it out. You pump it out. You put a lift station in. That's what we've got with with our fields that are along the river. We just pump it out. There's nothing to it. And then we turn it on and turn it off. In one of the fields, we've got the U.S. Geological Survey has a monitoring well there, and they've had it there for 30 years. And a lot of people would say, oh, boy, I don't want a government well in my – or a monitoring well in my field. I love it. That's how I, I we run our lift station. I look at that and I get a, a, an email every single day. It tells me, where is my water table? That allows me to, when I get to a certain point, I shut the thing off. I hit a certain point and I have to turn the thing on. Anyway, we'll answer more of your questions in the Ag PhD mailbag next. You need a powerful herbicide to fight the war on weeds. Bellum is Rotam North America's Mesotrion herbicide, and it fights against the annual broadleaf weeds attacking your cornfields. Winning this battle means higher yields, lower cost to you, and maximized profitability. For long-lasting residual weed control, check out Evinco, Vilify, and our newest mix, Rixa. For application, flexibility, and season-long control, that's Evinco, Vilify, and Rixa, powered by Bellum. For more information, visit bellumherbicide.com. That's B-E-L-L-U-M herbicide.com. If you're looking to get the most out of your foliar nutrition and fungicide programs, ask your ag retailer about Nutex EDA from Sipcam Agro. Nutex EDA has been proven to increase foliar micronutrient tissue levels and maintain those levels for an extended period of time. When tank mixed with fungicides, Nutex EDA helps support plant health, resulting in higher quality and yields. Nutex EDA is an affordable and effective solution that should be part of every grower's high-yield toolbox. You deserve to have a building that will last for generations. With more than 110 years of experience and thousands of satisfied customers, Morton Buildings is the industry leader you can trust. Unlike other construction companies, you work with Morton Buildings craftsmen. From conception to completion, there's no better time to buy. Lock in your new building for 2020 today. Contact your local Morton sales office or visit mortonbuildings.com. 
Each year brings new and unique challenges to farming, and your operation needs to constantly adapt to meet them. That's why at AgBiome, we're working every day to bring you new and better solutions, microbial-based solutions that protect your crop and help it reach its full potential. To learn more about how we're doing it, visit agbiome.com. That's A-G-B-I-O-M-E.com. AgBiome, feeding the world responsibly, partnering with microbes for human benefit. Oh my goodness, did you see Bob's gorgeous soybean rows? Um, totally. I couldn't believe how clean, weed-free his entire field looked. I'm like, so jealous. I heard he started using this new post-applied residual herbicide called Perpetuo, and it's burned down and long-lasting residual powers making his soybeans like literally the talk of the town. Ah, so Perpetuo's his secret. Yep. Talk to your retailer or visit valent.com slash Perpetuo to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions. Find your full potential and increase your bottom line with branded generic insecticides from Atticus, LLC. Unwanted insects are a nuisance, but they're no match for Serpent from Atticus. Serpent delivers economical, fast-acting, broad-spectrum control to help your corn, soybeans, and wheat crops thrive. Growers across the region count on Atticus for relevant and reliable products that deliver results every time. Ask your local retailer about Atticus products and visit AtticusLLC.com to learn more. For value-based solutions you can trust, turn to Atticus. Always read and follow label instructions. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, getting a crop progress update from around the area. And we'd love to hear from your area, 844-44-AG-PHD. If you'd love to share how things are going on the farm. Got an email here I want to get to from Troy over in Wisconsin. He said, I'm looking at no-till drilling in some soft red winter wheat this fall after soybeans come off, mainly because of the economic situation versus going to corn next spring. There's always a market for good wheat straw in our area, and a fungicide pass to treat fruit for fusarium is a must. My question is, would it make sense to add some 1034-0 to a spring stream bar application with my nitrogen? My soil test values aren't stellar in the phosphorus category, but they aren't terrible either. They're plus or minus 15 parts per million on a P1 and 25 to 40 parts per million on a P2 Bray test. I'm not against broadcasting MAP or DAP along with potash this fall before or after spreading the wheat, but I'm looking for a way to save a pass if I can. If it makes more sense to broadcast, I'd probably choose potash and possibly some AMS and pelletized lime this fall. Yeah, I would not stream bar 1034-0, and here's the reason why. Because the 1034-0 isn't going to go into the ground very well. By the time it gets in the soil and where you want it, it's next year's crop. So, nope, I would not do that. I would put it on some other way, get it out there, pre-plant, preferably with phosphorus at least. There are a lot of nutrients I'm fine stream barring. We'll do some nitrogen, some sulfur, boron. I mean, anything that moves in the soil at all, you're in good shape. Phosphorus just is not one of those. All right, thanks for the question, Troy. I got this one from Azam, who says, with tile going three feet below the soil surface, wouldn't that require your farm to be three feet higher than the surrounding ground in order for that to drain? Yeah, it's a great well, question. gravity, yes, you are correct. Unless, like we were talking about just a little bit ago, you pump it out. So if it's low, we have a couple pieces very low, one next to a creek, one next to a river, and in both cases, we actually pump that water out of there. But yes, gravity, then it would have to sit higher. The good news is uh, there is a lot of slope on uh, many of the fields that we farm and most farmers have. 
even if, let's say, you have to work together with five or 10 or 50 different farmers, eventually you can find a lower point and you can gravity feed it out. And that's how most ag drainage is done across the United States and really around the world. Thanks for the question. Uh, this one comes from Blake. He said, does corn height affect yield, affect grain yield? Well, yes and no. I, I mean, if you had a disaster and you didn't fertilize the corn and made it smaller, then yeah, it's going to yield terribly. But just because a hybrid is tall doesn't necessarily mean it's going to yield more. Now, if it's standing right next to a shorter hybrid, then of course it's going to yield more because it's going to shade the other one out. But let's say I had a whole field of 8-foot tall corn and a whole field of 10-foot tall corn, both perfectly well fertilized and managed perfectly for weeds, insects, diseases. Which one's going to yield more? Doesn't matter. I mean, we don't know if it'll be the 8-foot tall corn, the 10-foot tall corn. It's really the variety, and it's a lot based on the year. One of them might be better for a drier year, hotter year. You know where I'm going. But no, it it isn't the end-all, be-all of yield. It is very important, on the other hand, for tonnage. If you want more tonnage for silage, then yes, we would like it taller. Tall and big leaves and thick stalks. Yes, we want it big in every aspect. All right, thanks for the question. This one comes from Lynn, who sent a couple of pictures that don't look the prettiest. And Lynn said, we had a storm come through with 50 to 60 mile per hour winds two to three days after neighbors had sprayed with dicamba. Driving around the neighborhood, it's pretty obvious who didn't have dicamba beans. Everybody else's look like this. Is that possible two to three days after an application to still see things move? It's possible. It's just far less likely. Almost all movement occurs within 24 hours. What happened here is most likely not because of the storm. Now, yes, I realize it didn't show up until after the storm, but we've seen it with this dicamba deal here in the last few years. It can be up to two weeks before you see any symptoms that the dicamba actually hurt something. And I know you go, what? No, it's got to show up sooner than that. No, it doesn't. And the thing is, what I always tell people is, look, if it took a week or two weeks to show up after somebody near you sprayed, that's really good news. The odds are pretty high that you're going to either have no yield loss or you might have a yield increase. So we have seen so many yield increases from dicamba. Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that we have a whole bunch of dicamba drift or volatility that we want to see cupped beans or anything like that. But I am saying the odds are slim that the storm brought this over. The odds are this was already in your plants before the storm. All right, thanks for that question. All right, Brian, got a picture here of a pinto bean field, and I've also got uh, a soil test here, I believe, yes. All right, this comes from Toby, and he said, we had some pinto beans that were seeded June 11th. I don't know too much about soybeans, but they look kind of sick to me. I applied 35 pounds per acre of 32% nitrogen with 3% humic acid, at three pounds per acre a week ago. So kind of a low rate of fertilizer. And uh, then he put on three days ago, a 0.6020 at five pounds per acre. Just wondering what you think about the crop, how it looks and what you notice on that pre-plant soil what, test. Uh, where is this? Uh, Washington, I believe. 
Washington State? It says Beans. Oh, yeah. Beans okay. W-A. So I'm assuming yeah, okay. that might mean Washington. Okay. Yep, yep. You're probably right. We just don't. It's it's not like the heart of uh, bean country, but anyway, yeah, that that's why I was just curious where it's at. And the, here's the reason why I'm asking. I, I'm just wondering how much rainfall a person gets and what the soil type is. And so I'm looking for, that's why I'm struggling here, Darren. I can't find cation exchange capacity on here anywhere. Do you? Did it's you down s- towards the bottom. I, put, I made a mark by base saturation K there. Yeah, I saw base saturation K. I wanted cation exchange capacity. I wanted to know how heavy that ground is in I'm total. I'm not certain. I just uh, noticed the pH yep, here we was go. super low. 13.9. Okay, 13.9. So you're talking medium textured soil. The reason why I'm bringing this up is it's just like a question we answered a little bit ago, putting on P and K mid-season. No way I'm doing that. No way. Put it out there in advance. You'll have a lot healthier looking crop. But yeah, it looks to me like you're showing potassium deficiency on the leaves even, and I can see why. You're at 1.6% base saturation K. You need a lot more K, a lot more K, and your soil pH is way too low. It's 4.97, so you you really want to get some lime out there and get that pH up into the at least low sixes. You'll be in a lot better shape. So, uh, Darren, you had looked at this, it looks like, and made Mark that uh, low boron, low copper. But the number one issue you've got here is, in addition to your low pH, it's the low potassium. So just get your P and K out and your nutrients out earlier in the season, the the non-leachable ones like P and K, and you'll be a lot better off. All right, let's get back to the phone lines. We've got Steve with us in Illinois. Steve, how are you today? Just fine. How are you doing? Good, good. What's your question? I have a question. We just got some property for my son and he's going to use it for grass hay and I had soil tests taken and I have no idea what they mean. I'll tell you what, um, we'll, well, just if you could, just email the soil test to us, radio okay. at agphd.com and we can talk about those another day. But how about the weed okay. control? What do you have for weeds out there? Oh, uh, we've gotten rid of the weeds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. After Pro Plus and, uh, pretty much annihilated them and we, we have awesome. we have taken the first cutting and i one pasture i did from scratch planting it the other one i overseeded sure and they're they're not far from each other like um you know maybe a couple hundred yards um so the soils the numbers look pretty close to the same i just don't know what they mean you know sure uh, yeah, we're what, we're just about what, out of time today. What kind of grass? But, what kind of grass but, is it, Steve? Uh, just just your like a tall fescue. I used a mixture of Timothy and tall fescue and Kentucky bluegrass and you know like that. Yep. No alfalfa or clover or anything. Just straight grass. Yeah. Yep. Good. And that's why the weed control is so easy. When you're just in straight grass, we got lots of options, lots of fantastic options. That's no problem. Just real quick, I will tell you the biggest two nutrients we usually see response from in grass hay, nitrogen and sulfur. And it's a regular application of nitrogen and sulfur. But yeah, if you want to send us those tests, we can give you some more okay. comments. We can certainly look. And then we also... Have, oh, oh, uh, I have a Just the, the pH is, is, says pH water and pH buffer. There's two numbers. It's the water pH that you're looking for, the buffer pH. That just tells you how easy it is to change the pH. But again, yeah, you send those to us, and we'll uh, we'll certainly give you our feedback. Thanks, Steve. Really appreciate the call, and good luck on your hay crop. Thanks for listening to today's program. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio. Now stay tuned for Rob Sharkey and Shark Farmer Radio.